Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to concentrate on the study of God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have today to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, the opportunity to uh, be, have our trust, our faith, our reliance upon your word reinforced by a study of, of your providential care over your word down through the centuries. Father, we thank you for this nation in which we live. We thank you for the freedoms we have. We pray that you would continue to preserve those, to protect us. We thank you for the election this last week that that is over with. We pray that the uh, nation can unite under the leadership of our president. And we thank you that we have a man such as he in the White House, a man who is a believer, a man who is uh, seeking to apply absolutes to his decision-making process. And Father, we pray that whatever doctrine he has in his soul, that he can apply, and that you will provide for him advisors who can give him uh, wisdom based on divine viewpoint so that he can make uh, the decisions needed. Father, we continue to pray for this church. We pray for the uh, times ahead, the search for a pastor, that you would provide the right person. We pray for the congregation that they might not lose heart, that they might not grow weary, that they might stand fast, and look at this as a great opportunity to advance, to grow, and to watch your work, to be exposed to some different uh, teachers who are faithful expositors of your word. And we pray for the deacons as they go through the process that you would guide and direct them. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Unlike any other religious book, the Bible claims to be the unique revelation of God. Now, other books make similar claims, but the claim that the Bible makes is unique in that the process of inspiration 
is a process whereby God reveals truth in and through human authors. Now, that makes a vast distinction. You look at some other books that claim that they have uh, books from God, such as the Mormon Book of Mormon or the Quran. These were not written by men. They were basically dictated by an intermediate angel to some so-called prophet. And there's a difference in the dynamics of the revelatory process in other religions and that of Scripture. Therefore, Scripture makes a unique claim to be absolute truth, to present not just words about God, not just information about God, not just a record of human religious experience, which is what the uh, claim of liberal theology and neo-orthodoxy are. But this is a claim that, the, that God has revealed absolute, unchangeable truth to man in and through uh, human beings. Now, the question that we have addressed the last six or seven hours is, can we trust the Bible? And this is a question that is not necessarily something that is uh, as vital to many of us as it is to new believers. And I think that when you look at various different uh, apologetics-type issues, that their biggest uh, imp- their largest impact is on believers because it reinforces our faith. It gives us greater confidence in what we believe. And there are different times in different people's lives when they uh, go through circumstances or situations and they perhaps have doubts. Do I uh, really know that this is the truth? How do I know that the Bible just isn't some other uh, product like all of these other religious books? How do I know that Christianity isn't just just another human, human, or human generated, uh, religious system. And, uh, especially if you are in university or high school, this is the typical approach that you'll find in sociology classes and psychology classes and history classes. And to some degree, it's embedded in a lot of the, uh, opinions of uh, people in in literature courses, English teachers, English professors, and so you have to have data. You have to have information. You have to be aware that that uh, uh, much that they uh, teach in these courses is um, is ignores tremendous amounts of information, and willingly so. I remember when I was in college, my first year of college, I sat in a Western Civilization class with a professor who was over the course of my college career, was one of my favorite professors. I didn't always agree with him. He was liberal. He was a Methodist. He did not believe in Mosaic authorship of the Bible. He just thought the, had a neo-Orthodox view of the Bible, that the Bible was just a product of, of human experiences. And, in fact, the, I saw him um, some 10 or 12 years ago, and we got into a, a much better discussion over things. By then, I was a little more educated and yet he refused to accept clear conclusions of scholarship in the mid 20th century by the mid 20th century and continued to hold on to theories that had developed in the 19th century and what you discover is that that is more often true than not in a college or university classroom and it's not limited to that it it leaks out you watch programs on uh, A&E the discovery channel uh, many of these types of uh, shows on on the television that talk about the secrets of the Bible or uh, backgrounds of the Bible or 
show different things on Paul or Jesus or Moses. They're heavily influenced by neo-Orthodox theology, which questions the authority and infallibility of the Scripture. And then today we live in an era when, of course, this is some of this is this esoteric scholarship that has heretofore been restricted to the ivory towers of liberal institutions such as Yale and Harvard and a few others. And now this is filtering down to the masses through popular fictional literature like the Da Vinci Code and other books, as well as uh, films and, and movies. So we have to be able to, as believers, answer questions. Uh, uh, Peter tells us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That means if somebody that you know is reading this, reading the Da Vinci Code or sees the movie when it comes out and you get an opportunity to say something, you need to be ready to say something and have some facts at your disposal. So we've gone through uh, archaeological evidence that supports the claims of the Bible. We've looked at prophetic evidence within the scriptures that there is genuine predictive prophecy of such detail that it couldn't be manufactured. It's not written after the fact, but it was written uh, before the fact. And we looked at how we got the Old Testament, the process of canonization, and how those uh, 39 books of the Old Testament in in our English Old Testament, 22 or 24 books, depending on how the Hebrew Old Testament was organized, how they were gathered together into uh, the Old Testament, and that that actually occurred approximately 200 years before Christ. The Old Testament canon was settled, and even at the time of Christ and in the Gospels, we see that it is clear that Jesus accepted the basic structure and outline of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And this is one reason dating is so important. Sometimes people in churches sit around and listen to a pastor, and he spends an hour talking about the date of some epistle, and you say, well, why is that important? Because if if Daniel were written, for example, it's not an epistle, but it's an Old Testament book, if Daniel were written in the 2nd century B.C., then all of the prophecy in Daniel was just history. It's not prophecy. And so you have to be able to... Uh, demonstrate these things so that people can have confidence because the first thing you're going to do is go home and you're going to watch some show on television and they're going to say something and, and it's based on a late date of Daniel instead of an accurate date of Daniel. So people need to know this kind of, of information because it shores up your own uh, confidence in the Scripture and it also gives you the tools you need in evangelism to be able to answer questions and objections and doubts that may be raised by someone someone else. Now, last time we looked at the process of how we got the New Testament, and we saw that the New Testament was written uh, roughly between the period of, of uh, 50 years from 45 A.D., and I believe James was the earliest epistle, might be even as early as 45 or 46, uh, A.D. and approximately A.D. 95, which is when uh, John wrote the book of Revelation. That even uh, some liberals today recognize that the entirety of the New Testament had to have been completed by 95 A.D. It was the trend in the 19th century and mu- much of the 20th century 
to late date everything so that the Gospels and most of the epistles were really written in the second century, which would mean that the Gospels weren't written by eyewitnesses. They were just people who were writing these things down a hundred years after the life of Christ, and so they were taking various legends and oral stories, and they were uh, putting them together in terms of the myth of Jesus as it was in the second century, the legends, etc., that had grown up around uh, his life. And that's why you had a development in the, in the late 19th century uh, led by uh, Albert Schweitzer, wrote a very famous book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And the idea there is the Bible doesn't tell us anything about the real Jesus. This is just the embellished uh, imagination of the second century church. What we have to do is get past that to the real historical Jesus. You have to, in Rudolf Bultmann's words, demythologize the Gospels. And this led eventually, by the late 19th century, to this group known as the, the Jesus Seminar. And they were the ones who went through, and they had five different colors, and they would use different colors to indicate uh, whether or not some verses would have actually been said by Jesus or might have been said by Jesus or probably weren't said by Jesus or, you know, to the, to the fact that he never said it. And only about... Uh, 10% of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, they felt, were actually said by Jesus. So you see, you know, they would change your red-letter Bible to mostly a yellow-letter Bible. And uh, Jesus never said any of this stuff. And this is a direct challenge on who Jesus is. And into that vacuum, you then have scholarship that comes in and says, well, if, if these don't tell us everything we need to know about the historical Jesus... Maybe there are other books that tell us about Jesus. And thus we have uh, the introduction of the Gnostic Gospels. And so in 1947, there was the discovery in a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt, a bunch of Gnostic writings. And these were mostly written not in the first century, not in the early second century, but in the late second century and on in through the fourth century. And these included various alternate Gospels, such as the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas. And these uh, claimed to be uh, alternate, or claimed to give accurate stories about who Jesus was. And so now, based on postmodernism, that that, uh, everybody has their own truth, that we can take all of these Gnostic Gospels, and they need to be blended in with, with the traditional Gospels. In fact, uh, we probably shouldn't even read the traditional Gospels anymore because they've been dominating for so long, and they're just the result of some, you know, white male European uh, council in the 4th century A.D. that pronounced those uh, author- uh, uh, authentic and rejected the others because they, uh, according to the modern myth, which is false in itself, that the Gnostic Gospels elevated the principle of the feminine and elevated women to a higher place. See, all this grows out of feminism. So if you want to know why traditional, by traditional I mean biblical, traditional biblical orthodox theology has reacted so strongly and violently, and should have, I mean, in, in terms of its vociferousness in debate, to feminism, it's because this is where feminism is going now. It is being used to elevate not just Mary, the mother of Jesus. We've always had the problem with Mariolatry in Roman Catholic circles. 
but now Mary Magdalene to almost to the level of of uh, of the divine because she was allegedly married to Jesus and had his baby and and that's the theory and people uh, are believing these trumped up fictional stories because they don't know history they don't know the bible and they become easily misled by uh, popular writing so we've been answering the question how or can we trust the bible and we're at the last stage how did we get our bible how do we know that what we have in front of us whether you have a new international version or a new king james version or king james version or new american standard bible how do you know that this is the word of god and not just the word of man and many people are under the uh misconception that we have trans so many different translations that the more the bible gets translated the more we are separated from the original and that's not true see all translations are based on the original you don't translate it into latin and then into into uh some other language and then into english and then redo that you you don't go through all those steps you just keep going back to the to the original uh greek and we have far more uh, manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament than of any other ancient literature. And I put a chart up on the overhead last time showing that or comparing the uh, Bible to ancient manuscripts. For example, in the New Testament, we have almost 6,000 manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament that date back into the 2nd and 3rd century. We may even have, there's debate today, over one particular papyrus that some want to date even into the first century. But uh, P52 has been dated, and most agree that it goes back to about 115 to 120, and it's from a portion of John. No other work of ancient literature can uh, is supported by copies that are that close to the original. Not only that, we have, well, we have so many uh, manuscripts that it far outnumbers, far exceeds the number of any other extant uh, manuscripts. For example, Homer's Iliad is extant in only about 650 manuscripts, and those date back to within a 1,000 years of the time it was written. Uh, Euripides' tragedies exist in about 330 uh, manuscripts, and those are... Uh, again, about a thousand years from the time in which those were originally written, and I went through various other examples. So the Bible, so with the New Testament, not only do we have documents that go back to within 20 or 30 years of their original composition, but we have thousands of copies uh, of the Greek New Testament. So this gives us tremendous confidence that we have an accurate copy of the original autograph. The original autograph, and that means the original writing, these originals have been lost. We don't have them anymore. Uh, and that's due to a number of reasons. The uh, materials they used to write, whether it was treated leather, which was called vellum, or whether it was papyrus, these uh, elements would, would be... Uh, uh, would deteriorate with age and over time, and so they would copy them, and then they would destroy the original so that they would not be, uh, you know, if you get uh, a hole in a manuscript and it takes out a couple of words, then you are going to be misled by what it says. So they would destroy 
the originals. So we have a good idea from history, too, in the early church of what was understood to be uh, acceptable and to be authoritative. One of the claims that is made in the book, The Da Vinci Code, is that there are over 60 Gospels and that it was the Emperor Constantine who came along at the, through the Council of Nicaea and said, okay, let's just pick these four, and he is the one who excluded all the others. And that's based on a number of falsehoods. Number one, Constantine did not have anything to do with the selection of the canon of the New Testament, period. Number two, there aren't 60 Gospels. At most, including all of the Nag Hammadi Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, there's about 15, maybe 20 that uh, pseudo-Gospels that were written. And except for the four that we have in our New Testament, these others were all written 100 to 150 years after the time of Christ. So they were not written by uh, eyewitnesses. Furthermore, we have evidence from early church writers that they accepted the four Gospels that we have and no other. So this authenticates the canonicity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from a very early, early period. For example, Papias, who was one of the Apostle John's disciples, he lived from six, he was born about 60 AD, about the time that Paul was writing uh, the uh, epistle to the Ephesians during his first imprisonment, and he died about 130. So he was approximately 40 years of age when the Apostle John died and was and heard the accounts of Jesus directly from the Apostle John. And he was the first one to mention each of our four Gospels. He mentioned no others. By the year 150, another writer... Um, Justin Martyr identified the four Gospels and said it was these four and no more. Uh, Tatian, uh, another writer in approximately 170, A.D. 170, com- uh, wrote a harmony of the Gospels called a Diatessaron. And in the Diatessaron, he has only those four Gospels. Uh, Irenaeus, whose dates are 130, to 202 and about uh, 170 AD identified the four gospels and he said that it is not possible that the gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, I noted last time, 2400 quotes uh, are found in his writings are from all but three of the New Testament books. So they recognize the authority of, of these books. A Tertullian who lived from 160 to 220 quotes the New Testament more than 7,000 times. 3,800 of those quotes are from the four Gospels that we accept. Hippolytus, who lived from 170 to 235, has over 1,300 quotations from the New Testament. Origen, who is one of the most prolific writers in the early church, who lived from 185 to 254, his ministry was in the early part of the 3rd century, had more than 18,000 quotes from the New Testament in his writings. In fact, Eusebius quotes him as saying, I accept the traditional view of the four Gospels, which alone are undeniably authentic in the church of God on earth. 
He also said, I know a certain gospel, which is called the gospel according to Thomas. See, that was one of the Gnostic gospels. And a gospel according to Matthias. And many others have we read, lest we should in any way be considered ignorant. So they were not isolated. They weren't living in some monastic bubble where they were unaware of these competing uh, gospels and the competing religions. And they read them and they, they were aware of what was being said. Nevertheless, he says, among all these, we have approved solely what the church has recognized, which is the, that only the four gospels should be accepted. And it wasn't a church council that met and imposed this. It was done through the practice, the recognition. People read the gospels and they realized, well, this isn't what the same as this. And I challenge you sometime, pick up one of these other gospels and read it, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then read one of these other gospels and it will it will be very obvious to you what the difference is, and there are profound differences. So how did we get the canon? Well, it wasn't imposed by a church council, despite the fact that that's the normal human viewpoint approach. It went through a process. It went through a process, and there were uh, several criteria that were used in order to identify or, or to validate the selection of these books. The first is that it had to recognize the essential contribution of the Old Testament. The, the, whatever the New, the New Testament book was, it had to recognize and validate and be consistent with the Old Testament. They would not accept any document that was contradictory to the Old Testament or hostile to the Old Testament. And that particularly dealt with the heresy that came up in the mid-second mid century by a man named Marcion. And Marcion was anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. And he was really the first person to come up with a canon. And it's interesting that in the early church, usually the bad guys came up with a theology that was wrong or an idea that was wrong. And then finally the church would start to get their act together in response to a heretical teaching. So often orthodoxy is formed in the context of some sort of false teaching. So Marcion came along and said, well, the only gospel is Luke, and he only accepted uh, 11 of Paul's 13 epistles, and he rejected Hebrews and anything that had a positive statement about the Jews or Israel. Well, the early church had to reject that. They knew that was wrong, and so the idea that uh, this first principle that a book had to have a positive view of the Old Testament uh, was specifically in response to Marcion and his anti-Semitic uh, heresy. Second principle, the writing had to be consistent with the teaching of the apostles. Remember, the Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. So there had to be apostolic consistency. You could not uh, deny or contradict any of the doctrines taught by the apostles. Third, the writing had to bear evidence that it was inspired, that it was uh, authenticated through its own inner voice. As you read it, you knew that this was the Word of God. People recognized it for what it was. Therefore, they, the, there were certain books that edified or built up believers that were the source of sound spiritual truth for advance in, in, uh, in the spiritual life. And so over the years, people would read some books. For example, there was a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, 
which was a devotional book written in the late first century, and it was very popular, just like there are many popular devotional books today that people read, and they gain some encouragement from, like Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. I'm not, I don't recommend these because I don't ever read them, but I know that people do read these sorts of things, and uh, they have a limited value, but they're not the same as Scripture. And so over a period of uh, years, people would read the Shepherd of Hermas, and they would read Romans, and they would go, hmm, we'll stick with Romans. So it was, it was, uh, there was a recognition from just its internal authority that it was inspired. Fourth thing, a fourth criterion was it was its widespread use and recognition. It wasn't just that the church in Jerusalem recognized it, but the church in Laodicea, Colossae, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, all of the different congregations read it and accepted it, and so a a strong, solid consensus developed throughout the Christian community that these books were accepted. And many churches began to identify their own canons, their own collection. Sometimes they didn't know that there were other books. So for this period of time, you would have a, a church, for example, in uh, Antioch might not be aware that John wrote a couple of personal epistles, Second John and Third John, and so they wouldn't include that within their canon, or maybe they didn't know about Hebrews, or they didn't know who wrote Hebrews, so they didn't include Hebrews, or First and Second Peter, and and so maybe a ch- the church at Corinth had everything but First Peter, Second Peter, First John, Second John, uh, Third John, but they had the rest of it, but they didn't include. Other books. See, that's the important thing is that they may have had a little debate and discussion over Hebrews, Jude, James, First Peter, Second Peter, Revelation. Those were were pretty much the ones they had some discussion over. But there was never serious discussion about including the Gospel of Philip, or the Gospel of Thomas, or the uh, Shepherd of Hermas. That it, it, there's no other books beyond the 27 we have that were ever given any level of serious consideration. There was some doubt about some of the ones we do have simply because they didn't know they didn't know who wrote it, like with Hebrews. They uh with Revelation it has this curse that if anyone mishandles it, they're going to be cursed by God. That kind of scared a few people off. And uh then there were personal epistles such as Second John, Third John, Philemon, uh Titus that were written to individuals, and they didn't get as wide a spread of, uh, of circulation initially as the others did. So they, uh, they were a little later being fully uh, recognized. And then the fifth principle came uh, was a very practical perp- uh, principle, and that is persecution. When the Roman soldiers came to knock on their, the door of the believer and said, we're going to uh, confiscate any of your holy books, and if you're in pos- if you are in possession of any of these, then you're going to die. Well, do you want to die for uh, Shepherd of Hermas, or do you want to die for Romans? You know, on a good day, I'll die for Romans, but I don't I don't want to put my life on the line for the Shepherd of Hermas. So when it comes down to a life and death decision, which books are from God and which books aren't from God, and so those were the five principles that they used uh, for recognition of the 27 books of the New Testament. Well, there were three stages of the collection of Scripture. The first is the period of separate circulation. 
the period of separate circulation, 70, AD 70 to 170. This is the uh, time when these epistles uh, circulated either uh, in groups of one or two or three or four uh, or singularly, and especially among churches that were in close proximity. For example, if you were in Greece uh, and you had the proximity of uh, Philippi or Philippi, as uh, we call it, Philippi as the Greeks call it, Thessaloniki, Corinth, uh, these places weren't that far apart, so they would become aware of one another's epistles and would share those. If you were over in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Colossae, First, uh, Second, and Third John would all be very close together, and so they knew of the, these, and they began to collect those. Whereas they may not be aware of, of Hebrews or um, or First and Second Thessalonians, so they began to be uh, circulate independently. During this period, we have clear uh, attestation of the authority of these books by several early church fathers. For example, Clement of Rome, who lived in, and wrote about 96, about the time that, that John is writing Revelation, mentioned at least eight New Testament books in his epistles. Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote in the early 2nd century, around 105 to 110, uh, mentioned seven books as authoritative. Polycarp, who was another disciple of the Apostle John, mentioned about 15 books around 140. Irenaeus, who wrote about A.D. 185, mentioned 21 books. And Hippolytus, who lived at the end of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, mentioned 22 books. See, we have 27, so they're uh, becoming more and more aware of all of the New Testament books. During this time, the books that were questioned but weren't uh, completely excluded included Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Revelation. But the thing to remember is that no other books beyond our 27 were ever, ever given serious consideration. The next period of development we'll call the period of separation. Now you're separating out and isolating these books from the others and beginning to to go through more of a collection period. This is from A.D. 170 to 303. A.D. 170 to 303. Men in widely separated areas agreed in the main on a canon. You might have Tertullian down in North Africa who came to conclusions that these books were canonical and certain others were not, and he had no contact whatsoever with other men in Greece or in Rome or in uh, Jerusalem or Antioch, yet these all these men separated geographically with no ties or communication with one another were all coming to the same conclusion that certain books were authoritative and certain books were not, and they agreed on which books were authoritative. For example, Tertullian, who lived from A.D. 160 to 225, uh, didn't know about Hebrews, James, Second Peter, uh, Second and Third John, but the others he authenticated and recognized as canonical. Irenaeus and Tertullian operated in North Africa. Irenaeus was the bishop uh, of Lyon in uh, France, and he mentioned twenty-one books. He did not know about Philemon, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, or Revelation. Uh, Hippolytus, who functioned in Rome mentioned 22 of our 27 New Testament books. 
the old Syriac version, which was a, the Syriac translation of the New Testament, uh, included everything but Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude and Revelation. Are you noticing a pattern here? It's those smaller, uh, end of the New Testament period, or end of the Bible books, uh, the ones that were written by, um, or, or two individuals, and then the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews, because of the unknown author. The old Latin translation of the New Testament, which was done about 200, excluded First and Second Peter, James, and Hebrews. Origen, who lived from 185 to 254, uh, questioned but did not exclude Hebrews, Second Peter, Second and Third John, James, Jude, and uh, then there was the most famous and most significant is a book called the Muratorian Canon. Muratorian Canon, which was somewhere between 155 and 200, A.D. 155 to 200. And the Muratorian Canon recognized most, uh, all of the Gospels and most of the New Testament. I'm going to quote it at length. It says, at which, however, he was present, and so he wrote. The third book of the, that is a reference to uh, Matthew. The third book of the gospel is that according to Luke, the well-known physician, which after the ascension of Christ, Luke wrote in his own name from what he had learned when Paul associated him with himself as a companion of his journey. So he recognizes Luke as the author of the third gospel and as authoritative. And then uh, he says, nor did he himself see the Lord in the flesh. See, Luke became a believer much later. But inasmuch as he was thus enabled to proceed, he began his account with the birth of John. The fourth gospel is by John, one of the disciples. So he attests to Johannine authorship of the fourth gospel. On that very night it was revealed, that is at the time of the uh, Last Supper, it was revealed to the Apostle Andrew that all the things they had recalled to mind, John should write them all in his own name. And therefore, while various points are taught in the different books of the Gospels, there is no difference to the faith of the believers. Uh, just skipping through parts of this quote to hit some of the high points, he says, And thus he professes that he is not only the eyewitness, but also the hearer, and moreover also the writer of all the marvels of the Lord as they happen. That's referring to John. So he, he, all of these, uh, what this is attesting to is that eyewitnesses wrote uh, most of the Gospels except for Luke. However, he says, the Acts of the Apostles, however, were written by Luke in one book addressed to the most excellent Theophilus. And he makes it clear that these events took place in his presence, for he omits the passion of Peter, that is, Peter's uh, martyrdom, as also the journey of Paul when he went uh, from the city to Spain. The epistles of Paul, however, for those who wish to understand the matter, indicated themselves from what place and for what cause they were sent. First of all, he wrote to the Corinthians to check schismatic opinions, then afterwards a second to the Galatians about circumcision, to the Romans, however, at some length about the order of scriptures, and also to show that Christ is foremost in them. It is not necessary for us to discuss them separately, since the blessed apostle Paul himself followed the order of his predecessor John and wrote to only seven churches uh, by name. There is also circulated one to the Laodiceans and another to the Alexandrians forged under the name of Paul in regard to the heresy of Marcion. And there are several others which cannot be received by the church, for it is not suitable that gall be mixed with honey. So in the early church by 200, you have a clear recognition 
of the books that are in our canon. And then we come to the third period, which is called the period of completion. The period of completion from about 303, AD 303 to 397. Now remember, it's the Council of Nicaea is at 325. So we'll put a little timeline up here. And this period of completion is from 303 to 397, roughly covering the 4th century. And it's at 325 that you have the Council of Nicaea. It was about 315 that... Um, uh, Constantine became emperor. The issue at the Council of Nicaea, as we had studied many times, is who was Jesus before he came? It dealt with the problem of Arianism, but it did not deal with the problem of of Scripture. Now, Eusebius, who was present at Nicaea, uh, wrote a history of the early church. That's where we get much of our information on the early church. And Eusebius tells us that certain books were still debated at this time, but they were accepted. And these books include James, Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John. Uh, Revelation itself still had not gained complete acceptance, primarily because it had this curse on anyone who added to it or took away from it. It was during this period that formal acceptance and recognition took place. Uh, for example, in 363, there is a council at Laodicea which mentioned, doesn't, doesn't dogmatically state, but mentions the present collection of 27 books. Notice that's not, that's in 363 that some Almost 40 years after Nicaea, Athanasius, who was the bishop in North Africa in Alexandria, wrote an Easter letter in 367 A.D. where he mentioned the 27 that we have in our New Testament. And then there is another local council, not a church-wide council, a local council in North Africa in 393 at Hippo. This is in the area of ancient Carthage. And at Hippo, this is where uh, uh, Augustine was bishop uh, later on into the early part of the 5th century. At the Council of Hippo, they recognized the 27. And then the third synod of Carthage in 397 is the most, the final formal recognition of the 27 book canon, but it still isn't settled. Still isn't settled. How do we know that? Because the Catholics fight over it with the Protestants at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. So this idea that there is some sort of uh, list of authorized books that's handed down on high that forces everybody to recognize the 27 books of the New Testament is just a fraudulent misrepresentation of the process. It grew naturally out of the witness of God the Holy Spirit among God's people to the Word of God. And all these councils were doing were simply validating what had become accepted practice in the churches. And nobody was looking outside of these 27 books for anything other than your radical heretics such as, such as the Gnostics. So that's the process of how we got the 
uh, how we got the New Testament. Now, where do we go from there? How do we go from those 27 Greek uh, books of the New Testament in 397 to the Bible that you hold in your hands? And that is a fun and it's a fascinating study, but it's not one that we can spend a tremendous amount of time on as we close out today. I'm closing out the series. I'm going to come back and probably add a couple more lectures to this eventually. But since um, next week is my last Sunday here, I want to wrap this up this morning. And I just want to go over a few things. What was happening in the early church, not only while, while all of this canonicity is going on, people are translating the Bible. So not only do we have the early manuscripts that we have, but we also have translations that are taking place. And I mentioned earlier that there was an around uh, circa 200 A.D., you have the Old Latin. During the, first, uh, during the first century, you also have the Old Assyriac. You also have the New Testament that in this period is also translated into Aramaic and it begins to be translated in other languages. And so you can compare the translations of these ancient ancient New Testaments to what we have in the New Testament. That's part of what is engaged and are involved in uh, textual criticism. In the about the 4th century, Jerome translates the Old Testament and New Testament from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And this becomes known as the Vulgate. He also included, not as scripture, but as just good information, he included those books in the Old Testament, which we refer to as the Apocrypha. And this is uh, sort of Old Testament supplementary information, but because he included it and bound it together in the Vulgate, uh, later on, people began to accept it, and Roman Catholicism uh, validated the Apocrypha as canonical in about 15, 1565, roughly, at the Council of Trent, and pronounced an anathema, that is a curse, on anyone who didn't accept those books as canonical. So, just to let you know, you all are under a curse, and you've been under an anathema from the Catholic Church for I don't know how long. Uh, and the, the, the Latin Vulgate became the common translation down through the Middle Ages. And if you couldn't read Latin, you couldn't read the Bible. And there were various attempts, though, to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. And many, there were many early attempts down through the centuries. In fact, um, uh, there was a Cadman... In England, uh, the Venerable Bede and Alfred the Great of England all made attempts at translating small sections of the Vulgate into Old English. But the first one to come along and make a strong stab at it and get most of the Bible translated was a man by the name of John uh, Wycliffe. And his dates are 1320 to 1384. 1320 to 1384, and Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation. 
He lived during a time of tremendous moral and political upheaval in the Roman Catholic Church, a time known as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy, when uh, it was a time when France was very strong militarily, and basically the French king didn't like some decisions that the Pope made, so he sent his army down into Italy, and they kidnapped the Pope and brought him up to Avignon in France. And for a period of 70 years, uh, the Pope ruled out of Avignon, France, basically under the domination of the French king. So it's a time when people are beginning to question the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and nationalism is just beginning to uh, develop the seeds of nationalism. And so it doesn't make the British very happy to know that the Pope that's dictating to them is basically under the thumb of their rival king, the King of France. Wycliffe lived during this time, and uh, he, he attempted to translate the Bible into English. He had a number of followers who were called Lollards. They were... Uh, poor priests who preached and read and translated the Bible into English, and his idea was to use the easiest and most common English. And so he was the first, by 1388, to make a complete translation of the Old and New Testament. He was the first to make a complete translation of the Old and New Testament. And following Wycliffe, we also have uh, William Tyndale. And Tyndale made a another translation of the Bible. And about, I, for, I don't have the statistics in front of me. In fact, this is one of those mornings when your pr- printer probably ran out of paper and printed up through page 9 of my notes. And I don't have pages 10 through 12. So... That's okay. I've gone through this many times, and the whole thing's out there on the Internet. Uh, William Tyndale translated, and he, he was martyred for his translation. He was burned at the stake. Nevertheless, uh, in his closing prayer, as he was being burned at the stake, he prayed, God, open the eyes of the King of England. And just to show God's sense of humor through various divorces and, and uh, infertility problems, uh, Henry VIII had to get rid of some of his wives, and the church didn't like that. So uh, Henry VIII decided to separate the uh, English church from the Roman Catholic church. And out of that came the Protestant Reformation in England. You know, you'll run into some secular historian who will say that, that uh, that's really the basis for the Reformation in, in England, but it's not. See, by the time that happened, Martin Luther had already nailed the 95 Theses onto the uh, door of the church at Wittenberg. John Calvin was saved, and there, the Reformation had already taken off on the continent. But the writings of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others were being circulated in England, and there was a strong grassroots movement taking place already in England. It, the Lord just used Henry VIII's uh, uh, in, uh, problem with producing an heir to uh, give uh, political sanction to the Reformation in in England. Then you have the King James Version. Oh, at the same time here, what, what develops is you have in the late 1400s, early 1500s, you have the development of the Hebrew text is uh, being used, and they're beginning to, to publish Hebrew grammars. 
and they also develop uh, from on, uh, a Greek text, and they publish Greek grammars. And as a result of this, many scholars are saying, well, we need to study the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew and not in the Latin translation. And that what, what really is what really lays the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. And this is why today our tradition is still to teach from the original languages, because that gets us closer to the truth. And then you had a man that came along by the name of Erasmus. He was a Catholic who believed that the Catholic Church needed to be uh, overhauled, that the Catholic Church needed to be reformed, but he didn't go as far as Luther did. He didn't hold to justification by faith alone. But he was a classic scholar, and he took eight or nine Greek manuscripts, which dated from about the ninth or 10th century uh, A.D., ninth or 10th century, and he developed a, a critical text of the New Testament, and that became a basic foundation for uh, English translations. There were several others involved in this process. He had numerous uh, editions that came out. You uh, also had a French scholar by the name of... Uh, Robert Stevens, he's the one who added verses to the Greek New Testament while he was riding on horseback from Lyon to Paris. You wonder why some of the verses seem to be in odd places. I think, I think that horse stepped in a few holes. But that's, that's when verses were first added about in the 1550s by Robert Stevens. And so this lays the groundwork, but this text that Stevens and Erasmus developed becomes known as the TR, the Textus Receptus. And it's those eight or nine manuscripts in that Greek text that becomes the basis for the King James Version. That's the TR. And that's the standard revision. And the King James Version, by the way, is revised at least ten times between its original translation in 15... um, 1511 up through the end of the 1700s, just for all those King, jo- King James only people out there who think that the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for good enough for me. It went through lots of changes and updates. You even had one one version that was printed that was called the Adulterer's Bible because they left the knot out in the what's the seventh commandment: Thou shalt commit adultery. So you have various interesting things develop in the history of the, of the Bible, but in the 19th century, there's a tremendous uh, development with the discovery of thousands of papyri and some very ancient documents. There's the discovery of Sinaiticus, which is usually abbreviated with an Aleph, uh, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus. Now, all of these, plus, I think, P46, these four all come from North Africa. And they represent, you know, each group of manuscripts has certain characteristics depending on what the original was before that. And so you really have three or four different families of New Testament manuscripts. You have the North African family. Then for most of the period through the Middle Ages, you have the, the manuscripts that survived in the uh, Turkey, Byzantine area, and these are classified as the Byzantine text, 
And today that's usually called the majority text. And this was the vast, as the term says, the vast majority of documents. Then you had another group in, uh, in Rome. So that's called the Western text. And then you had a group out in, uh, Jerusalem, Syria area, and that was called the, that was called the, uh, Caesarean family. And there's some debate over whether that's a legitimate, distinct family, but that's more than we want to discuss this morning. Anyway, in the 19th century, they, because these four documents, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, and P46, all dated from the late third, or the, yeah, the fourth, basically the fourth century, uh, A.D., they were much earlier than other documents. So the idea was that they're older, they must be better. And this, I'm really simplifying, this dominated textual criticism uh, for at least a 100 years. And the two uh, English scholars who were most responsible there were Westcott and Hort. And so this dominated, and this is the distinction between, uh, for example, if you're using a New American Standard Version or New International Version or any of the other modern translations, it will read differently in places than King James or New King James. The King James and New King James are still based on the TR. And the TR, those eight or nine manuscripts, are part of the Byzantine family, but they don't agree completely. Starting in the 40s and 50s, a number of scholars started moving back, not to the TR, but to a recognition that the Byzantine family may be a more accurate tradition. And so this became known as the majority text view. And the majority text is not the same as the TR. There's at least 1,800 differences between the two. But this is a view that, for the most part, that I, uh, I uh, uphold to. I think it's got much stronger arguments than those that come out of the old Westcott-Hort, uh, Westcott-Hort view. And perhaps someday I'll do a, do a, uh, a talk on the on textual criticism, but that really gets into some some stuff that gets past uh, past a lot of people. It's very technical, and um, we'll cover that another time. But that just is to explain why there's a difference in some of your modern translations. The other thing that comes along when you deal with your modern translations is translation theory, and you have two issues today in translation theory. The first is the debate between dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. Now, in any translation from one language to another, there's always a certain amount of, of interpretation that goes in. You know, there's no one-to-one formula between one language and another. Languages aren't that rigid or static. So there's always a certain amount of interpretive nuance that takes place in translation. Formal equivalence tries to stick as closely as possible to the, to the word order and the structure of the original language. For example, New American Standard Version is probably our, our best formal equivalence. If you, if you get too exact, then because the word order in Greek is different, the uh, structures are a little different and won't make sense in English. So you always have to maneuver words around, change the word order at times to make it make sense in English. Dynamic equivalence 
is the idea that you, 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 you're translating more of the ideas. It's more in the idiom of the speaker. The NIV is probably one of the most conservative of the dynamic equivalence translations. Probably the worst is this thing called the message, which is almost a paraphrase. And paraphrases are at the, I guess, the worst end of the dynamic equivalence spectrum. So these are the debates that go on among scholars is just how you translate uh, from one to another. When people ask me, what Bible do you recommend? I usually recommend the New King James Version in the, what is this, the Thomas Nelson uh, Study Bible. Not every, there, there's no study Bible that uh, uh, people would agree with 100% with every every note, but it tends to be grace-oriented, tends to be pretty solid in a lot of places. Uh, the men who edited it are not only grace-oriented, but most of them are dispensationalists, so it's pretty solid in, in many areas. Or I recommend the New American uh, Standard, and there was a revision in 95 which got rid of the these and the thous. And uh, the NIV... I find to be wrong. I disagree with their translation theory completely, and they're really off in a number of places. Where one place they translate the word for fleshly as worldly. That really can get you confused. But the NIV Study Bible has great notes. Just ignore the text. Uh, and then the other big issue today is gender-specific language. And there's a tremendous debate over that. And if gen- and uh, the the uh, attempt is to you know of course the worst thing is to not refer to God as a he or a him, and in other places they try to get rid of the uh, third person masculine pronoun uh, when it's used, or to get rid of words like mankind and make it humankind things of that nature which which is just pandering to a political socially political social excuse me, a social political movement today, and for that reason, it just ought to be rejected out of hand. Uh, if, it w- if God did not see a problem with using human language that was gender-specific, s- gender then we shouldn't either. See, at the very root of that is a blasphemous charge against God's ability to communicate. So those are just some of the issues uh, facing us today. The Bible is trustworthy. We can go back thousands of years. In the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the case of the early manuscripts that and 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 just segments, just just uh, portions of readings that we have from the early second century, we can uh, ju- you know compare that to what we have, and we know that we have the Word of God. It hasn't been distorted. It hasn't been lost. Uh, nothing was added to it. There weren't Gospels that somehow disappeared and finally showed up at the end of the 20th century. We can have confidence that this is the word from God and not a word about God from man. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be challenged by the truth that it is your word, that it is without error, it is infallible and that you have preserved it down through the centuries, and that we can be confident that what we have, though it's a translation, is an accurate representation of what you have revealed. Above all, Father, you have revealed your love to us in the, in the living word 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, and that by believing in him we can have eternal life. Perhaps there's someone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny. You can take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. There's nothing required of you other than faith or trust, reliance upon Jesus Christ exclusively for your salvation. All you need to do is forming words and thought alone. You say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You trust in Christ. If you're relying upon that, God the Father knows instantly what you're relying upon. And at that instant, you are saved. You're regenerated. You're justified. You're given eternal life, which can never be taken from you. And you become a member of God's royal family. Now, Father, we thank you for what we studied today and in this series. And we pray that you would challenge us and, and strengthen us with these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.